Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, we continue our walk through this letter-slash-sermon. It does come across as perhaps the sermon notes of a pastor, a preacher, who is reaching out to those who are Jewish, ethnically, and previously religiously, who are facing hardship and persecution because of their trust in Christ and Christ alone. And they are considering going back to their Jewish roots, perhaps rejecting Christ because it is seemingly easier to do so. And so the preacher wants to let them know that Christ is superior and probably unlike any other book in the New Testament This immediately from the beginning of chapter 1 all the way through the end of the letter or sermon exalts Christ. Christ is superior to the law. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to Abraham. He's superior to Joshua. superior to angels. He's superior to everyone and everything. He is worthy of our worship and we dare not abandon him for he will not abandon us. One of the uniquenesses as well of this letter slash sermon is its emphasis on uh, two things. One is Jesus as high priest. Certainly other New Testament authors allude to Jesus being our high priest, but it is Hebrews that gives us the clearest and most extended picture of Jesus as our high priest. And although not all of us viewed it as such, what a blessing it was last year to go through the book of Leviticus and to see the role of the high priest in connection with the end part of Exodus, all of the garments of the high priest and all of the uh, ways that he was to minister to the nation of Israel, the, the special reality of that role, that he was to represent the nation to God, and he stood as a mediator then uh, in, in that role. So not only Christ as high priest, but a second uniqueness, uh, certainly in the book of Hebrews, is Christ as fully human. Now, obviously other New Testament writers affirm the humanity of Jesus Christ, but the focus seems to be on Christ as God, the God-man, God incarnate, Because, generally speaking, the pushback seems to be, okay, Jesus, yes, he was real, real person that lived and died and possibly rose back to life from the dead, but he was just human. He was sort of special, certainly, and God anointed him to do special things, but he wasn't truly God. And in order to combat that, much of the New Testament authors outside of Hebrews uh, focus on Christ's deity, especially, let's say, letters like Colossians and others where that has come under attack. But in Hebrews, although it definitely elevates Christ as God for sure, it seeks to remind us repeatedly that Christ is one of us. He's fully human. And really, our only hope is that he is both fully God and fully human. If he is not fully God, then he is not perfect, and if he's not fully perfect, then his sacrifice for us will not atone fully for our sins, and we are still left in our sinfulness and our rebellion. And then conversely, if he's not fully human, then he's not one of us, 
And so while his sacrifice may have been, had some measure of modeling for us as far as love, it doesn't really do us any good because it wasn't one of us that was being willingly sacrificed. And yet because he is both God and man, we have great hope in him. And only in him is the point of the author of Hebrews. As we come in then to the first part of chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 this morning, what we want to see from the text is this idea of empathy. No doubt, the individuals to whom this author is writing need someone to empathize with their situation. They are really in uh, perilous times. They have been expelled from the city of Rome in AD 49, as we learned even when we looked through the book of Romans a couple years back. They've been recently let back in, and yet because they are Christian, they almost have no home. They don't fit anymore with their Jewish upbringing. Ethnically, they don't really have community anymore because the Jews have in no uncertain terms distanced themselves from Christians, called them heretics, and of course the Apostle Paul most notably was persecuting Christians, persecuting his fellow Jews who had become Christians until God saved him miraculously. And they don't really fit in the Gentile world because their entire upbringing and their entire world growing up was Jewish. And so they don't really have a home similar to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet persecution is ramping up. And currently, we believe, depending on when Hebrews is written, Nero is the emperor. And as we know, just shortly after Hebrews is written to this audience of Jewish Christians, the persecution of Christians will amplify Nero blaming them for a fire in the city and causing them to be martyred en masse. It's tough. It's difficult times. Christianity does not seem to be accepted in any way, shape, or form. In fact, all of society on numerous fronts is opposed to Christianity. Does that sound vaguely familiar? And so what the recipients, what the audience needs is some empathy and the author is going to assure them that that indeed is what Jesus has for them. Before we read the text though, we have to define what we mean by empathy because it is variously defined as other words have come to be redefined in our culture. We're quite familiar with the word sympathy. Sympathy seems, uh, uh, at its base, simply means that you feel badly. You have some sort of feeling towards those that are going through uh, something that is a struggle. They are feeling some sort of struggle and or pain, and you sort of, you feel badly about that. And so we may sympathize with those who are in Turkey and Syria and the, the ongoing realities and the impacts of the earthquake. We have sympathy towards them. It may be that sympathy then compels us to act. So we may give. We may attempt to help in other ways. Sympathy may cause us to act. And yet sympathy can, can merely stop at that feeling of sort of compassion in some way towards those that are struggling. We feel badly, but it does not necessarily always translate into action. Empathy, empathy, though, is different because empathy is not just feeling badly at a distance, 
But empathy is entering into someone else's pain. It is in some way taking on their situation as if it was yours. It involves a lot of listening. It involves a lot of time. It involves zero judgmentalism. And it involves a whole heaping foundation of love. Empathy is much more difficult. But it is what we are called to as believers in Jesus Christ, and it's certainly modeled for us most perfectly by Jesus Christ, who certainly sympathizes with our weaknesses, as we noticed in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 from last week, but also empathizes with us as the author is going to expand on, as we're going to read in just a few moments. However, there's a few things that empathy is not, and we need to be careful of that in our society. There are those that would say that unless you have personally walked through what somebody else is going through, you cannot empathize with them. In fact, if you try, you are harming them in some way. And so it seems that the philosophy is, unless you know exactly what it is that I'm going through, don't talk to me, because you don't know what I'm going through. You have no idea the pain and the suffering and the struggle that I am, uh, you know, facing. And unfortunately, that's not true. Because empathy involves a lot of listening, caring, loving, and time, we can empathize with someone even if we have not personally walked the road that they have. How many of you here this morning, during a time of struggle or pain, were helped by even those who have not had that same struggle or pain, but they were there for you? to listen, to help, to love. So it is incorrect to say that unless you're struggling in the identical way to me, don't talk to me, that is not empathy and and, and should not um, cause us to not be empathetic. We ought to be empathetic, even if we don't fully understand what somebody uh, certainly is, is going through. And empathy also has a goal. Our society's brand of empathy oftentimes is goalless. Its only purpose, seemingly, is to sit with somebody in their pain and struggle and just be there with them, with no goal to that empathy. And yet empathy always has a goal. Empathy's goal is to be with someone, to enter into their pain and their suffering, in order that, in an appropriate way, at an appropriate time, with appropriate words, we can remind them of truth. Empathy's goal is, to not, is not to leave somebody wallowing in their pain and struggle. Empathy's goal is to gently, slowly, appropriately, winsomely, lovingly, bring them back to the truth. But far too often in our culture, it's just merely we're going to sit here with you. Like Job's comforters who sit for a whole week with Job and say nothing. We're just here. We're physically present, and and yet there's no real goal here. Unfortunately, Job's comforters go from not saying anything to saying very harmful things, and neither of those things is very helpful. (laughs) There are times when we just need to sit with somebody and not speak. That is appropriate. Whether that's a whole week or not, hard to say. 
But to only sit with somebody and never steer them towards truth, never guide them to the one who knows what they're going through even better than they do and who loves them and who can bring them back to himself, that is not ultimately helpful. We need to bring people back to the truth, capital T truth, which is who is Jesus Christ the righteous? And so we want to talk then this morning about empathy as it is biblically defined. Empathy is not simply affirmation. Our society has redefined love to mean affirmation. Whatever you feel, whatever you think, whatever you're going through, whatever your perspective is, you're awesome. And that is not love. Love loves us as we are and loves us enough to not leave us there. Because we are very poor judges of character, both our own and others, and we are even poorer judges of what is true left to our own devices. We need the truth, the truth of God's word and the truth who is Jesus Christ the righteous. That is what love is. Love is revealing to someone lovingly the truth, and empathy is part of that. To walk with someone in their pain and in their struggle attempting to understand where they're coming from so that you can better bring them to where they need to be. That is biblical empathy. And no one models it more perfectly, clearly, than Jesus Christ the righteous. So follow along, if you would, with me. Hebrews chapter 5, we're going to read the first 10 verses. Hebrews chapter 5, starting at verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So also... Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God. For those interested in what it means that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, just be patient. We're getting to chapter 7. We'll be there soon. So really this chapter divides into two parts. The first four verses show to us the empathetic human high priest, the example, the, the model, the standard of what a high priest was supposed to be in a human realm. And then in verses 5 through 10, the author then points us to Jesus, who is the empathetic, perfect high priest, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So let us look in the first place then at the first four verses, the empathetic human high priest. And we're going to walk through this a little bit differently than the order that it appears in the text. I'm going to take some license here because I want to drive at the point that I believe the author is trying to get at. 
What does it mean then to be an empathetic human high priest? It would certainly be very easy for a high priest to forget who he actually is and what his role actually is. It would certainly also be very easy for him to come to despise the very people that he is representing. If you were given the priestly garments that are described in Exodus 28, you could be excused for believing that you were something, that you were a big deal. These are exclusive. No other Jew gets to wear this. And this is quite glorious. This turban, this linen cloak, and then the ephod, this breastplate with the 12 precious stones, the urim and the thummim as a part of this regalia. It's quite a thing. We have seen uh, some of this a little bit with the English monarchy, with weddings, or even the queen's funeral. There is much pomp, and there is much circumstance, and there's different pieces of clothing that are put on royalty, monarchy. We get a little glimpse of what it would have been like to have been dressed as the high priest. And then you are the only Israelite, the only one, who once a year gets to enter the holy of holies, to see there the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat and the cherry beam on the, on the lid. Be very, very tempting and very, very easy to believe that you are better than the people that you are representing. You ever had anybody be condescending to you? Anybody? All right. Perhaps you've also been condescending to someone. That's a consistent fight that the high priest had to make if he wanted to honor God. It's very difficult to represent and to love people before a thrice holy God if you disrespect them, if you believe that they are beneath you, if you believe they are unworthy of God's grace. I come upon this far too frequently amongst Christians. I said it this past weekend while we were away in Newfoundland, guest speaking, and I'll say it here. Arrogance and Christianity should never go together, ever. The very gospel itself ought to humble us consistently. And any thought that we are better than anyone else means we don't understand the very gospel that we say is the foundation for who we are and what we believe. The gospel, by its very nature, humbles us. We cannot save ourselves. We are not good enough. We are not smart enough. We are not prettier than others. We are sinners, and we cannot save ourselves. We are lost and undone, and only God can rescue us. So for a Christian to be arrogant means that in that moment, that Christian has forgotten what it means to be a little Christ. At the core of being a Christian is humility. Bernard of Clairvaux was once asked, what are the top five virtues of Christianity? 
And he responded, humility, 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 and humility. And so notice with me, if you would, from the text, some things that the author of Hebrews reminds us of about the human high priest. First of all, he is weak. The end of chapter 2 says, since he himself is beset with weakness. Despite the clothing, despite the ritual, despite the Shekinah glory of God descended over the place you're about to enter, despite all of that, you should always remember as the high priest, and we should always remember as followers of Jesus Christ, that we ourselves are weak. We are not better than anyone else. This high priest, even given all of the situation and the scenario, he is reminded he also is weak. His weakness stems from the fact, first of all, that he's human. If he's not human, he can't be a high priest for other humans. We should probably look at that and say, duh, but it's explicitly given to us here in the text for clarity's sake. A key reality of being a high priest is that you have to be of the same uh, nature, of the same essence of the thing, of the individuals that you are representing. You yourself have to be human. And to be human is to be weak. Anytime we, re- we forget that, God has a way of reminding us of it. We love to believe that we're in control. That our opinion matters more than it does. That our thoughts are more brilliant than they actually are. There is a weakness in just being human. There's emotional weakness and mental weakness and physical weakness. There's all kinds of weaknesses. And certainly what is implied in the text is that there is spiritual weakness. We do not live life out of a a position of strength. We live life, or ought to live life, out of a position of weakness. We ought never to be arrogant. And certainly as the high priest goes in, even with all of the garments, and even with all of the sacrifices, and the whole nation, Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, waiting for you to perform your duties, should never lead to arrogance. human high priest was weak. He was also sinful, verse 3. Because of this, because of, of, in particular, his spiritual weakness, his sinfulness, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. How did that day begin? You can go back and rewatch that sermon if you wish from Leviticus 16, but in brief, it begins with Aaron bathing himself, cleansing himself, putting off his regular priestly robes, putting on the high priestly robes and garments and paraphernalia, And his first official act as the high priest on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, was he had to offer sacrifice for himself. Lest he be too high and mighty in his own thoughts. Lest he think in his heart, these rebellious, stinking, rotting people that I have to go to God on behalf of. I am so much better than they are. It's a good thing I'm here. Or man, where would they be? No, 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 no. The first act of that day, the first official act, sacrificial act was blood had to be taken into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled against the Ark of the Covenant for the priest. 
He was just as sinful as the people that he was representing. And it was an annual reminder of that for him. Lastly, then in verse 4, he is selected. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. As a final reminder of the humility that should be the foundation of this role, you did not choose this for yourself. You did not take this for yourself. You weren't even elected by your peers. You didn't win any opinion polls. You didn't advocate on behalf of yourself. You didn't pay money. God selected you. And it is only because of his amazing grace that you have this role and this position. This is not something that you took on yourself. It was given to you by a thrice holy God. And we forget that also at our peril. You are not sitting here this morning because you figured it out. You're not sitting here this morning because you're better than friends or family. You're not sitting here this morning because you're smarter than anybody else in this room. If you are here and you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are only here because of the grace of God and the grace of God alone. I do not stand before you in the clothing that I wear and the position that I hold because I am smarter than anybody, because I earned this in any way, because I bought this or I rose to the ranks. I am here this morning, like every other Sunday morning, only because of the grace of God. And that is it. If you are one of God's children, it's because he selected you, not because you selected him. All of God's grace. Taken together, what is the point of the author of Hebrews? Go back to verse 2 if you would. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. What, what was the heartbeat of the high priest to be? What was the attitude of the high priest to be? This is a fascinating word in Greek, this idea of dealing gently. It is somewhat of a mediating position between anger and apathy. It's a fascinating word study. On the one hand, it is not condescending. It is not to say, I can't believe you would sin like that. I mean, me? I don't sin like that. I, I just, I, I'm just incensed that you would sin like this, especially against me, because clearly I am much better than you. That, that there's no room for that in this word. But it's also not a winking at sin or some sort of indifference or even indulgence. It's not to say, well, I do the same thing, so it's really not that bad. No, it's a recognition of the seriousness of sin coupled with a recognition of the latent sinfulness of the individual themselves. I hate sin, and I hate it everywhere it appears, even in my own heart. Therefore, where it appears in others, I can be gentle with them, firm not deviating from truth, but I'm not coming from a position of judgmentalism. 
I'm not coming from a position of an ivory tower looking down. One of the ways that our society believes Christians operate is that we sit around thinking that we're better than everybody else. And nothing should be further from the truth. If you want to find the greatest collection of individuals who recognize and openly admit that they're sinners, you should be able to come to Grace Baptist Church. Because every Sunday morning we're here not because we believe we're better than those that aren't, but because we know that we are sinners in need of God's grace and we desperately need to be here to hear his truth preached, read, prayed, sung. We need accountability. We need one another as the church family. We are sinners in need of grace. Are we saints? Absolutely. But saints of God are not arrogant or ought not to be. We are not here because we believe ourselves better than anybody else. And so that gives us an amazing role and an amazing position in our culture to say, on the one hand, we recognize truth. We believe it. We attempt to walk in it by God's grace. And so there is a standard. But on the other side or, or, or along with that, we also recognize that we ourselves are susceptible to deviate from the standard. We ourselves have already deviated from the standard today, will probably tomorrow. And so there is a humility as we call other people to repentance as we have and continue to repent. We do not stand in judgment over anyone. God is judge, not us. And so the human high priest who is truly empathetic can deal gently with fellow sinners. As I come before the altar, as I come before the chariot beam and the mercy seat, the Holy of Holies, I come first on behalf of myself because I am an equal sinner to those that I'm representing. Then I can come on their behalf. So secondly, then this morning we have the empathetic, perfect high priest. And there's a bit of a reversal here in some of these uh, realities, but it ends where I sort of ended the first point, if I can put it that way. Notice in the first place that Jesus also is selected. Verse 5, Jesus did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. Jesus did not take this position onto himself. It was appointed to him by God the Father who in Psalm 2 says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And in Psalm 110, verse 4 says, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Father appoints these realities of the Son. First of all, of course, Jesus does not need to scrabble about for some glory. He has all glory. He is God. And John 17 brings that out amongst other places. Philippians 2, he did not count equality with God, something to be clung to as if he could lose it. There are many things that you can say that Jesus isn't and insecure is one of them. Jesus is not worried about losing his position as God. He is God, one of the three persons of the Godhead. And yet as it relates to roles and positions, they are given to him by his Father. He does not take these on. One of the many examples of Christ's humility which gives us hope that not only is he the model for us of what humility looks like, but he is the empowerment in us of that humility in action in our lives. We can be humble. We can be secure in our relationship with God. 
we can humbly take on the roles and responsibilities that he's given us. Understand that those roles and responsibilities are to be used for his glory and the good of those that we are serving. We don't have to hang on to those things as if we find our identity in them. We find our identity in Christ. We gladly and enthusiastically and faithfully do whatever it is that he calls us to do. Notice that Christ also became weak. In the days of his flesh, Jesus enrobes himself with humanity. He is fully human. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So this is a very interesting verse, to be sure. He cried out to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard, and yet he died. And didn't just die, but died the most horrific death ever died, because not just because it was crucifixion, other people were crucified, but because the sins of the world were laid on him. So how is it then that his prayers were answered? If he's praying to the one who could save him from death, and he still dies. What does it mean that he was heard because of his reverence? Some believe that these are all the prayers and supplications that Jesus prayed when he was here in his earthly ministry. I tend to take the position that this is both the prayers and supplications in the Garden of Gethsemane prior to the crucifixion, as well as any cries that Jesus had from the cross. How does he end his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus fully obeyed his Father even to the point of the most unjust death that has ever been, that has ever happened. So he's heard because of his what? His reverence. How does he view his father? He views his father as a proper son should, and he reverences his father. And he says, Father, whatever you call me to, your way is best. Your plans are best, and I will obey willingly and gladly. Thanks be to God, someone has done that, because I haven't, and neither of you. Thanks be to God that Jesus succeeds everywhere we fail, and his obedience is complete all the way through to the cross. And in fact, it's even more complete than that. And if you want to hear more about that, come back tonight at 6.30 and we'll talk about where Jesus' soul went in between the crucifixion and the resurrection and see that his obedience extends even beyond the grave. Notice verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. First part of verse 9. Does this mean there was something lacking in Christ? Can't be. He's already perfect. He's God and very God and also man and very man. So what does it mean that he learned? Because Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things. So you could perhaps substitute the word experienced. He experienced obedience through what he suffered. It is not to say that Jesus was imperfect in any way, but in the same way that we might say, we get a bunch of resumes for a position that we're trying to fill, 
And we kind of weed through the resumes, we're trying to find the perfect one, and then we interview a pool of candidates, and we might say something to the effect, this person is perfect for the job. Does that mean that the individual themselves are morally perfect, that they have no sin? Of course not. What it means is they match the qualifications for what we're looking for, and we have every confidence that they will fulfill the role perfectly, as perfectly as it can be. It's a bit of a poor analogy, but it's more an analogy of experience than an analogy of essence. It's not saying that Jesus was imperfect and needed to obey his Father in order to be made perfect. He already was perfect. What it means is he followed through perfectly with the plan of his Father, the plan that he and his Father had worked out from before anything was created. He didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk all the way to Calvary, to the grave, to Hades, and then in his ascension. He was fully perfect, and he fully suffered everything for us. Of course, verse 9, in the third place, he was sinless. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. There is no sin in Christ. If there was, we do not have a Savior. Unlike the high priests, who was sinful and needed to offer sacrifices for himself, Jesus, as we'll find out later in the book, particular chapter 10, but, but throughout the book of Hebrews, he didn't offer a sacrifice for himself. He was the perfect sacrifice. And he didn't repeatedly offer sacrifices on an annual basis. He offered one sacrifice once for all and sat down at the right hand of the Father on high. The high priest never sat down. The priests were always standing. There's no chairs in the tabernacle or the temple. Always standing, always serving, always things to be done. Jesus does what he came to do, finishes the work, and sits down because it is complete. As he said from the cross, it is finished. What does that mean then in verse 9? It means that he can deal gently with sinners. How is he made perfect? He is made perfect by experiencing all that it means to be sinfully human while not being sinful himself, Hebrews 4, all the way to the result of sinful humanity, which is death. He walked through all that it means to be human and yet experienced it more fully than any of us will ever experience it because he never sinned. He experienced temptation at a greater level than you will ever experience because you and I always eventually give in. Jesus never did. He took the full weight of temptation, even from Satan himself, and did not give in. Are you hungry? He knows what it is to be hungry. Are you thirsty? He knows what it is to be thirsty. Have you ever been betrayed? Anybody? Nobody's been betrayed like Jesus was betrayed. You ever felt lonely? Anybody in this morning has felt lonely? Okay. No one has felt loneliness as deeply as Jesus Christ the righteous. Whatever path God has you on, his son has already traveled it ahead of you. And therefore, he has entered into your pain and suffering. He knows what it is that you're going through. But he can call you out of that to himself. 
Our pain and suffering should not lead us away from him, but they should drive us to him. The author of Hebrews is writing to these individuals to say, yes, you're under persecution. Don't run from the only one who gets it. Nobody was persecuted like Jesus was persecuted. If any of us were imprisoned unjustly or were martyred unjustly, we could say, yes, that was an unjust martyrdom, an unjust imprisonment. But at the end of the day, there's some sin that we have committed, not that sin that we were convicted and arraigned and imprisoned for, but we, we are not perfect people. But Jesus' trial and Jesus' crucifixion is the most egregious miscarriage of justice in the universe because he was perfect. There's no reason that Jesus should die. And yet he did. Not begrudgingly, but willingly for you. Run to him. He is better. He is the best. Whatever it is, that you're running to, to say this, this will satisfy. This understands me. This gets me. This is my comfort. If it is not Jesus Christ, it will fail you. Only Jesus Christ understands. Only Jesus Christ can save. And our author this morning once again wants to remind us in our pain, in our suffering, in our times of doubt and distress, there is only one who can empathize with us fully. And there is only one then that can draw us to truth, which is himself, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, we come before you this morning and perhaps we are burdened we're experiencing conflict or we're experiencing loss. We're experiencing some measure of pain and struggle, be it physical or otherwise. We have all been on the receiving end of poor examples of empathy. Individuals boldly declaring to us that they know what it is that we're going through, even though they don't. Individuals that offer untimely, unauthorized, and unsanctioned advice. Individuals that in their attempt to help only make things worse. We are not the first to have such comforters. Going all the way back to Job and even before him and throughout scripture and throughout human history. And yet, Father, thankfully by your grace, because of your mercy, we have experienced individuals that have lovingly and kindly and gently and graciously come alongside of us, have been there for us, have listened, have heard us, have been quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We have felt heard and not judged by them. And then when the time was right, when we could hear it, they spoke to us truth. And it brought us back from the brink. It helped us. It was balm for our soul. Father, we are thankful for that, but there is no one that can do that like your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has been through 
whatever it is that we're going through. He understands, and as we have sung, he cares. He does not want us to wallow in self-pity. He does not want us to adopt a victim mentality. He does not want us to trade victimhood as a commodity and try to outdo one another in how we have been hurt. No, he wants to heal us. It has been said that the church is not a museum for self-righteous saints, but it is a hospital for sinners. And sometimes they neglect the fact that at a hospital people get better. Yes, we are sick. Yes, we are sinful in need of a Savior. But when we come to you and when we gather in your name around your word and we hear it preached and prayed and sung and spoken, when we gather with your people, when we observe the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, when we are together in our small community groups and love each other and speak words of comfort and truth to one another, sometimes hard to hear, in all of those circumstances, Father, we are progressively healed. We are being made more like your Son. We thank you, Father, that you love us as we are, but love us too much to leave us there. You love us enough to transform us to become as you are, full of love, joy, peace, goodness, gentleness, graciousness, kindness, meekness, humility, righteousness, holiness, justice, truth, love, and so much more. Transform us by your word, Father, we pray. And thank you for your son, our empathetic, perfect high priest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.